Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. The Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm chapter number 12. Psalm 12. We're continuing with our series dealing with the Holy Scriptures. And what we're doing is we're just breaking up the study of the Bible into different segments, bite-sized segments that we could get a good grasp with good understanding and to build on top of one another to give us an idea and an understanding and a way to explain to others that the Bible that we hold in our hand is indeed the very word of God that God intended us to have. Now with that, we've already talked about inspiration, the idea that the Bible is God-breathed, that man did not write the Bible, God wrote the Bible. We built upon that with the idea of verbal plenary inspiration. The word verbal means the words, plenary means each and every. So we believe that each and every word was inspired of God. That God didn't inspire the word singular. He inspired the words plural. That God inspired the words. We talked about the human penman. That God used human penman, but it was God that wrote it. He just used instruments. We went on and talked about the inerrancy of God's word. Speaking about that the Bible tells us the truth. That's the big emphasis that God tells us the truth. We spoke about the accuracy of God's word. That every subject that the Bible speaks about, whether it's history, science, archaeology, whatever else, is all true and accurate accurate, up to date, that we're still catching up to the science and to the history of the Bible that the Bible has revealed to us. And now as we continue to put another building block upon that, as we've talked a little bit about canonicity, how we, that God's the one who gave us the Bible, that man just recognized what God did. We're adding to all of this. Now we're going to put it together in this very important supernatural doctrine studying about the Bible, dealing with the idea of preservation preservation. With that, notice with me in Psalm 12. Psalm 12 verses 6 and 7. Psalm 12 verses 6 and 7. Notice with me starting at verse number 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Psalm, Psalm 12, and notice with me in Psalm 12 and verse 7, notice the phrase, thou shall preserve them. Thou shall preserve them. And with the Lord's help, we would like to explain this doctrine of the Bible, preservation of scripture. The preservation of scripture. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. Thank you for the great privilege it is to be in your house and to have the Bible for ourselves and to have confidence that this is not man's 
word, that this isn't something that's been tampered with. There's nothing that's been changed with it. But we can have confidence that the Bible that we have in our hands is indeed the Bible you intended us to have. And that we have your promise upon it. I'm asking that you would nail it down, that you would give an understanding, that you would clarify anything that needs to be handled on this subject for people to have confidence in your word. Lord, because this is something beyond me, I ask that you fill me with your precious spirit and that you would get your own work accomplished as we talk about your word, that you would do it yourself and we could trust you to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we approach this doctrine, maybe we could take this verse and do a little review. Notice, first of all, the purity of God's word. The purity of God's word. Notice with me in verse number six, as it gets a running start, and it starts that the Bible that we started with was pure. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words. And then it gives an illustration here. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now here it talks about God's pure words that we start off that God gave the words. He's the one that gave them to him. Inspired by him. God inspired the words. We have God's words and what he intended us to have. That's what we started off with. And he gives an illustration to kind of get in our minds as a word picture. God understands that we don't think in tinker tape. For example, when you think thoughts, you don't have like a little CNN scrolling thing underneath it thinking about your thoughts. When you think, you think in pictures. And because of that, God uses word pictures to kind of put a picture in our mind so we can have a better understanding of what he is teaching. He is saying God's word is pure words. So here's a word illustration. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words, just like as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now in the ancient world and even up to today, they have a system of purifying metals. Now most of you would have an understanding that when you have a whole big chunk of metal that not only do you have gold or silver, but you have different impurities inside of it. Now, if you were to take that gold or silver and you would begin to heat it up, we know that different elements melt at different temperatures. In Wisconsin, you know that. You throw salt on the ice. That causes the ice to melt at a, at a warmer temperature than ice by itself, right? We know that different things, different imp- Uh, things mixed together will melt at different temperatures. So what they do is they get the temperature just right to go ahead and melt the gold or the silver or whatever precious metals they're trying to melt. And what will happen is that the gold and the silver will come to the bottom. Then the impurities the other elements, the other things that are mixed in with that gold brick or that gold nugget or that silver ore or whatever it is, would rise to the surface. And because of heat, they would separate out. Then what they would do is they would scrape off the impurities, which is called the dross. They would scrape it off and just leave that gold or silver or whatever metal they're melting behind. Then what they would do is they would let it cool off. Then they would reheat it again and more impurities would come to the surface and they would scrape off the dross, let it cool down. Then they would reheat it again. And that in the ancient world, it was considered that if you did that to a metal of gold, silver, or any precious metal, that if you did that to a process of seven times, that you would have about as pure of a metal as you possibly could have. 
And so here is this refining process that most of the people would have an understanding with. By the way, we still do this process, even though it is chemically, we still do that process today to get purified gold, metal, silver, and ore. But here is this process, and it's giving a comparison, just like this process of refining comes out with a product of pure, uh, pure gold, that the end product, the Bible, is just as pure without impurities. It's giving something in mind. That we start off that God inspired his word. God breathed his word. They came directly from God. God used human instruments. That the product we got, that what God gave us, was pure, untempered, uncorrupted. It was exactly what God wanted us to have. Well, people will now put a pause here and say, but, and the tr their wisdom is that after God gave it to us, what happened to the Bible? And most people would have the idea that man was now responsible. The problem with man is that we can't do anything right. Would you agree with that? We can't do anything right. You give us enough time, we'll mess up everything. And so the idea was is that if it was given to man, that given enough time that man would mess it up, he'll bangle it, bungle it up, he'll lose this, he'll add this. Have you ever played the telephone game? It was something we had when before we had electronics, you know? You would, um, <laughs> you would tell someone a secret and that person would tell another secret and they would tell another secret and by the time you got to the very end, that original phrase or sentence is completely different. And people would use that as, you give it to man and you pass it on. He's going to mess it up. He's going to add something. So well, there's no way we could trust God's word. Sure, at one time it was pure. At one time it was perfect. At one time it was what God said. But now after all of this time, man has messed everything up. Well, how do we answer such things? Has man messed it up? Have we goofed it up so badly that we can't even tell what was original, what God was pure? Well, this is why we have the second thing here, the preservation of God's word. The preservation of God's word. Notice with me in verse 7. So verse 6, it talks about God's word is pure. Then in verse 7, it says this, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now in verse 7, we have a lot of pronouns. What is a pronoun? A pronoun is something that has replaced a noun. And so whenever you find a pronoun, you have to find the antecedent. You said, why are we in English class? We're supposed to be in Sunday and Bible, none of this stuff. Well, the antecedent is the noun that was replaced. And whenever you try to find what the pronoun is, you have to actually find what was the word that was replaced. So let's look and examine verse number seven. Thou shall keep them. So thou, who's this thou there? Well, we can see that this word thou is a place of direct address. For example, I could say you go close that door. You go do this. Well, with this person of direct address, we could see the person that's being addressed in the verse. Thou shall keep them O Lord. So who is expected to keep them? God is. According to the here, God is the one who's obligated to keep them. What well, brings up the question, what is this them here? This idea of them is an important idea. If you get the wrong antecedent, the wrong noun that was replaced, it messes up everything. Many people 
who don't believe in the preservation of scripture will say that this them here carries the idea of the Hebrew people. That God has promised to preserve the Hebrew people. Well, that sounds good and all. However, that's not context. The person that's being addressed, the thing that's being addressed, thou shalt keep them. We have to look in the context and find out what is this talking about. Well, notice in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them. Now, we have not switched subjects. We haven't introduced another noun. We haven't introduced another thing. So this them there must be under proper grammar and interpretation, must be the words of the Lord. That God, thou shalt keep them, the words of the Lord. So according to this, Whose job is it to keep God's word? Not man's, it is God's. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them. What is that them? The words of the Lord. According to this promise here, it is God's job to keep his own word. Well, that's wonderful. That means we can't mess it up. Because God could do a better job of keeping and maintaining things than we ever could. Now, just like Inspiration is a supernatural doctrine, meaning that God supernaturally wrote his word. Preservation is also a supernatural doctrine, meaning it's up to God to preserve his word. Now, in both instances, he can use human instrumentality, human penmen, but it is God's responsibility to write his word and to preserve his word. Does that make sense? Now, I'm teaching this as a class, so I appreciate if I get the, the head bobs and not bobbing sideways, but making sure that you're with me. Because I want you to understand this. This is God's promise. God promised to preserve his word. It is not man's responsibility. God has used man, but man did not have an opportunity to mess it up because God promised to keep his word. That's a wonderful promise. The weight is off of our shoulders. It's his responsibility to keep his word. And God is able to keep his word. Now with that, this is not the only promise of preservation. May we quickly go through and show you other promises of preservation. Because I want you to see in your own Bibles where God promised to keep his word. Let's, we're in Psalm. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 118 in verse number 89. Again, I want you to see it for yourself. I want to see where God promised that he is going to keep his word. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Now this is a good uh, point here. God has his word settled in heaven. May I ask a rhetorical question? Does God have a different Bible in heaven than what we have here? No. No. So God doesn't have to say, all right, well, I compared the two. Let me tell you, you guys messed up. This is what it should say. God is able to preserve his word. And not only is God's word settled in heaven, it implies that it's settled here. That God has promised to keep his word. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, and notice with me in verse number 8. Isaiah 40 and verse number 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand 
forever. Here God has made the promise that his word will stand forever. Now can God lie? No. So if God made a promise, does he have to keep it? Absolutely. God said his word will stand forever. He promised to preserve his word. He promised that his word is settled in heaven. He has promised that his word will stand forever. Well, let's turn to the gospel record of Matthew. Let's see what Jesus has to say about the subject. We can always rely and depend on Jesus. Matthew chapter number 24. Matthew chapter 24. By the way, this same promise in Matthew 24 is repeated in Mark 13, 31. I'm not going to repeat things, but I'm letting you know that it's recounted a couple times. Matthew 24, and notice with me if you don't mind in verse 35. Here's Jesus speaking. So it's not someone else. This is what Jesus himself is saying. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Here's another promise. God said, my words will not pass away. No one's going to lose them. No one's going to fumble them. No one's going to hide them. My words will not pass away. They're going to stand exactly where I want them. Notice with me in John chapter number 10. John chapter number 10. Now, I'm not showing you all. I'm just showing you a couple. But God has promised throughout his word, Old and New Testament, by Jesus' own lips, including in that, that God promised to preserve his word. They're not going to fall. They're not going to falter. They're going to be exactly what God intended us to have. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and notice verse 35. John 10, 35. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, notice this, and the scripture cannot be broken. Here Jesus is giving this promise, the tail end of what he's speaking about, that God's word can not be broken. It's going to last. No one's going to fall. No one's going to mess it up. Notice again as we go to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. Again, I'm just showing you these promises for yourself so you can see it's not just something I took from one verse and made up a whole doctrine. This is something that's repeated over and over. God promised to preserve his word. Jesus spoke about it. The Old Testament spoke about it. Peter is now speaking about it. 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, notice with me in verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all the field flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof fadeth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever." And this is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. Here it says the word of God endureth forever. It liveth and bideth forever. God's word will last forever. Not just the pieces of paper. We'll talk more about that in a second. But God's words that is written. Now as we turn back to what Jesus said. Turn with me to Matthew chapter number 5. Let me build upon this some more now. Notice with me in Matthew chapter number 5. We know that God promised his words, plural, will not fade away. Not just the general concept, but the words, the each and every word of God is going to be kept. Exactly what God wanted them to say. But notice that God goes beyond the actual words. And notice what he has to say in Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter 5, and notice with me if you don't mind, in verse number 18. Matthew 5 and verse number 18. 
For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law Tell all be fulfilled. Now this is important, but let's understand what it's talking about. It starts about one jot. That word jot is the same word as yod. It is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A yod, a jot, is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You know what he just said there? He said, I'm going to make sure that even the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is not going to pass away. I'm going to make sure that it's done exactly right. That's a pretty big promise. He said, my word as a concept is going to last, sure, but the words are going to last. But not just the words, that even the smallest letter is not going to pass away. I'm going to preserve my word. But notice he goes even beyond that. He talks about now one jot or one tittle. A tittle is a marking that we have to change one letter into another letter. For example, if we had the letter P, the capital letter P, all right, standing straight, the round about letter P. What do you do to change that letter P to a capital letter R? Well, you add that little leg underneath it. That little leg would, is what we call a tittle. It is a marking that changes one letter to another. And God says, not only am I going to keep my words, plural, the words, I'm going to keep even the smallest letter. And not only am I going to keep the smallest letter, I'm going to keep the, each of the fragments of the letters that make one turn to another. I am going to keep them until everything is fulfilled, until everything in the Bible is talked about. I'm going to preserve my word. Now that's pretty accurate. That's pretty specific. God promised to preserve his word. Now, may I also underline something here? If we don't have God's preserved word, that means Jesus is a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, he cannot be our savior. You understand that it's not just the idea that I like this Bible more than another. We have the idea that Jesus has put his name upon it. And that Jesus has put his reputation upon it. And that Jesus has put his sinless perfection on it. And if Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, who does? Jesus promised to preserve his word. May I even double down on that idea? Turn with me to Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Now I appreciate, I know we're looking at lots of scripture today. But I want you to see for yourself that this isn't some... Fat Baptist preacher who just came up with an idea. I want you to see that this is what the Bible has to say about this. Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Notice with me in verse number 2. Psalm 138 in verse 2. I will worship towards the holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. Now, this is pretty significant. We know inside of the Ten Commandments that one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In fact, that verse goes on to say that God will not hold him guiltless who holdeth the name in vain. That's a big deal. God says, I'm going to remember everyone who took my name in vain. But you know that there's one thing that God has placed above his name? He has a Ten Commandment over his name. He says, My word. My, thy word is magnified above thy name. It means that God takes this seriously. If he takes his name so seriously that he will not hold him guiltless who take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. 
He says, my word is above my name. That means he takes it serious. He's not going to entrust people who are going to mess it up. God is going to protect God's word because he holds it higher than his name. This is a big deal. With it, let me show you something else really quick. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. Now, as you're turning there, some people have the belief that when God inspired his word, that what they meant is that God inspired a piece of paper. Now, without a doubt, we do not have the original copy or original autographs. That's the fancy word they gave it. So when Paul wrote down a letter, we don't have that paper anywhere. Without a doubt, that's, that's historical fact. When Psalm, uh, when P- David wrote Psalm 23. We don't have that original paper that he wrote it on. So some people will say that God inspired the autographs. He inspired the piece of paper. But we no longer have the piece of paper anymore. They're gone. And so therefore we don't have the inspiration of scripture anymore. Well if you don't mind let me show you something. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3. As uh, Paul is talking to Timothy. Notice what he says in verse number 16. Uh, Verse 15. Get a good running start. And from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Which were able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given. Notice that word is. Now another English class, sorry. That word is is what we call the present tense. It's not the past tense. He didn't say all scripture was inspired of God. It's not future tense. All scripture will be inspired of God. He says all scripture is present tense inspired of God. Now in verse number 15 it says from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. We know according to the book of Timothy that he was raised by his mother and his grandmother mother Eunice and Eunice and that they had taught Timothy the scriptures. So when they taught Timothy the scriptures and they wanted to read the book of Habakkuk did they have the original uh, paper that Habakkuk wrote on? They did not. What did they have? They had a copy of 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 a copy. And what God said through the inspiration of scripture to Paul, he says that copy of a 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 copy that you have is currently present tense inspired of God. Because God inspired the words, not the paper. And that God promised to preserve the words, not the paper. And that we have the inspiration of God preserved for us in the very words that he has given to us. Even though we all have a copy of 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 a copy. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to show is that present tense we have inspired words of God. It wasn't once inspired and now we have copies. The inspiration continues through because God inspired the words. And he promised to preserve his words. All right, let's go to practical application. What do we do with such things? Well, today I want to show you the third thing here. The perfect translation of the preserved text. That what happened is that God preserved his word. And now we don't 
speak Greek and we don't speak Hebrew. The Old Testament was preserved in Hebrew. The New Testament was preserved in Greek. Now, you don't have a Greek Bible in your hands. You have an English Bible. And what happened is that we had to translate from Greek and from Hebrew into English. Well, does that mean that we lose inspiration? Does that mean that we lose things? No, because we were able to get a translation from the proper text. In the Bible, as God through history has preserved his word, a wonderful thing has happened. We've had multiple copies. And what they're able to do is they're able to take Greek manuscripts from different places around the world, from different ages, different times, and bring them together and compare with them. And the wonderful thing is that because God promised to preserve his word, the 50,000 copies that we have, oh, they agree together. Isn't that kind of cool? That no matter where they were at, no matter when they were at, the Greek copies, they read the same. We call this bundling called the majority text. It is put together in a book called the Texas Receptus, but it's called the majority text, saying the majority of the text, they agree together. And then the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew copies, was preserved. And we'll talk more about that tonight, about that process. But they have very... Great checks and balances. I'll give you a taste. Do you know that when the Hebrew scholars had to write down the Bible, when they finished a book of the Bible, they had to count the letters? All right, how many A's do you have? One, two, three. Well, if they were missing an A, it didn't work. You had to go back and start all over. They count all the B's and then they count all the C's. Well, that's pretty accurate if you have all the letters there that are supposed to be there, right? Well, so we have two preserved texts, the Masoretic text in Hebrew, the majority text in the Greek. And what happened is that we took these copies or these, these uh, preserved texts and we translate it from the correct text. And that's how we got the Bible. How our, our authorized version, our King James Version, by the way, we'll talk more about this later on this year. For four, 300 years, the Bible that we have was called the authorized version. People said we use the authorized version. When the 1800s, when they finally came up with a new English translation, the Revised Standard Version, they found out that when they put it in bookstores, people wasn't buying the Revised Standard Version. They were only buying the authorized version. Why buy something that's revised when I have something that's authorized? They changed the name to King James Version, so now it's another version. Here's a King James Version, this version. And so they did it for the idea of cells, and they try to convince us to call it the King James Version. That's why I still refer to it as the authorized version, because that's what it was called for 300 years, until people got involved to try to sell more books. However, all of the other English Bibles, the authorized version was translated from the correct text. All of the other 800 English versions of the Bible were translated from other texts that did not agree together. You have the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Sinaiticus, and I don't remember the other one. But there are three texts that don't agree with each other and don't agree with the text. But what happened is that because people like the other text better in the way that they read, they decided to translate all the other English versions of the Bible from these texts. So, which is going to be more accurate? Five or 50,000 renderings of the same text that agree together or three that don't agree with each other and don't agree with the text? Which one would be the most accurate in your mind just from numerics? Well, the one that has all of them together. 
instead of just three singular ones. And we'll talk more about the history where those came from later on. But all of the other English versions come from the different text. Now, because of that, we are not in a fight with translations. We're not trying to say our translation is better than you because that becomes more subjective. We believe that we have the preserved text because it was translated from the correct source. There are many people who say, well, we have a good translation. Great. I believe you have a good translation, but it's of a bad text. So the argument is moot. Does that make sense? Where did you get the text from? Now, because of that, because they take from texts that are not the majority text, that is not preserved, that is full of errors, those errors show up here. Now, before we started service today, I passed out several Bibles. Would you, if you have one of those Bibles, hold it up so I know who you are. All right? Now, I want everyone else to look at these same verses, but let's look and see what the other versions say. I passed out a new, uh, new international version, an NIV version, which is the best-selling Bible outside of the King James, the authorized version. I gave out a revised standard version, which is the first version to come after the re- uh, Bible, new English translation, new living translation, and some study Bible. Let's look at a couple verses, and let's see what your texts say in those other Bibles. Look with me if you don't mind to Acts chapter 8 verse 37. And if you don't mind, everyone else look in your Bible so you can see for yourself what's the verse that we ha- we're talking about. Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. Now, I could have pulled more of my Bibles at home just to kind of show you. I use them as illustration purposes. I just chose some here. But Acts 8 37. All right, I'm looking for those ones with the five. When you find it, raise your hand. You found it? 837? Acts 837? You find it? You are correct. Someone can't even count, huh? They don't have an entire verse in there. What is the verse they took out? It says in Acts 8.37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, that's a pretty inverted verse to take out. By the way, the other people, the other versions advertise that we just updated the text. We twisted the text. We didn't take anything out that would affect doctrine. Well, for someone declaring that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, doesn't that affect doctrine a little bit? Well, let's, let's just give the benefit of the doubt. Let's look and see if we can find another one. Turn with me, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 7, or Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Matthew 17, and notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse 21. Matthew 17 and verse 21. Now, again, I have five different versions out there. They're not the same versions. They're different versions out there. So let's just see. Maybe one of them uh, has a different rendering. Let's look. Matthew 17 and verse 21. When you find it, raise your hand. Let me know you got it. No one's raising their hand. Well, what verse did they take out? Well, look with me, for those of you who have your Bible, Matthew 17, 21. How be it this kind goeth not 
out, but by prayer and fasting. Now, this is talking about the disciples are like, how come we couldn't do that? And Jesus said, there are some things that you have to pray and fast for. By the way, as a fun fact, the NIV has taken out all references of fasting all throughout the Bible. Well, that does affect doctrine, doesn't it? If Jesus says there are certain things that don't come except by prayer and fasting, if you take out fasting, doesn't that affect doctrine and getting our prayers answered? That's a, kind of a big deal, isn't it? Well, you know what? Maybe this is just a fluke. Let's see if we can find this one. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to uh, Matthew 18. Nearby, you could easily find it. Matthew 18 and verse 11. Matthew 18 and verse 11. All right? Raise your hand if you got it. What? Well, well maybe, maybe it's not that big of a deal of a verse. Let's see what it says. Matthew 18, 11. For the Son of Man is to come to save that which is lost. Well, that's a big deal, isn't it? That Jesus came to save his lost. But I thought it wasn't affecting doctrine. Well, that affects doctrine quite a bit, doesn't it? Now, I could go on and we're just going to have the repeat of the same. The NIV, which is the best-selling Bible outside of the authorized version, has over 2,000 words, verses, passages missing in the New Testament alone. 2,000. You understand, we're not talking about who has a better translation. We are talking about, did it come from the correct source? Does that make sense? Well, let's try something different. Turn with me, if you don't mind, at Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, verses 9 through 21. Now, I'll give you a preview. You will find these verses in there. However, there's an asterisk and there's a marking. Almost all the text Bibles that I passed out should have a little marking before Mark chapter uh, 16, verse 9 and whatever else, that it will say the longer reading of Mark. Correct? Something like that? But notice it will have a footnote at the very bottom. And at the bottom, it will say something like this, that the oldest text do not have um, Mark 9 through 21 or whatever it is uh, in there. Does it say something like that in the footnotes? Something? Now, what they say is they have this concept is that the oldest is best. The oldest is best. And so they have this idea that we have done research and we have found old Bibles that have looked like they're brand new, pristine, not touched. Therefore, because they're older than all the rest of them that we find, they are better sources of translation. Let's use those. By the way, that's where those three texts, Codex Vinaicus. So how do we answer that? If they say that our text is older, Ours must be best. Yours is, we, we can't find any old uh, copies of, of your received text of the other stuff. How do we answer that? Well, quite simply. Now, remember that the printing press was not invented until the 1500s. So, how did people get copies of the Bible before that? They had to handwrite it. And so, does that mean that there were more copies or less copies? less copies because someone had to handwrite it. Now, if there's not a lot of copies around and I happen to have a copy and I was a good Christian, as I start reading it, what happens to my Bible? It starts to fall apart. Um, I go through a Bible once every three or four years because I'm constantly in it. Now, before they actually had book Bibles, what did they use? 
scrolls. So can you imagine what would happen if I'm reading my Bible faithfully and I'm opening and closing a scroll all the time? It falls apart. So the oldest and best, how did we get the oldest and best? Well, we know that there was some text that had mistakes in them. And what would happen if I knew my Bible had mistakes, would I want to use it? But because maybe I had respect for the Bible, I just didn't want to toss it in the trash. So I just put it on a shelf somewhere. Right? By the way, that's where one of them came, the Codex Sinaiticus. The Codex Sinaiticus uh, <laughs> was held in what was called Mount Sinai, a Catholic monastery in Sa um, that Saudi Arabia area. And as the Catholics were uh, cleaning house one day, they decided to burn some of these old scrolls that no one's going to use, that had mistakes in it, nobody likes them. And so they had a man by the name of Tischendorf come. And when Tischendorf came, he started to survey and he saw these old manuscripts and went, Oh, what's, oh, and he watched them burning in the trash. What are you doing? Well, they were not idiots. They go, this guy's making a big deal out of this. What, what's up with there? He says, if you're burning, what are you doing? He says, well, no one uses these Bibles. They got mistakes in them. We're just burning them. We're just getting rid of them. He says, oh, can I have them? Well, they started going, hmm, if he wants them, no, you can't. Maybe we could hold them back for something bigger. He says, well, can I at least read them overnight? Okay, I guess we got to turn them in in the morning. So he went that night, started going through the scrolls, and he decided that he only had enough time to write down like one book of the Bible. And so he spent all night writing the book of Barnabas. And he says, how much can I get for these? I would love to buy them. I bet you're getting rid of them after all. By that time, they're really going, oh, this must be worth something. And so they said a price that was above his price range. He went to the Russians. The Russians bought for him. By the way, when the communist revolution came, they sold those Bibles out and whatever else. But that was the Codex Sinaiticus, who the people who kept them knew that they were trash and they were sitting on the shelves for for many years. And that was one of the texts that was used to translate these Bibles out there. Would that be a trusted source? So is oldest necessarily the best? Could it be the, the oldest because no one used them? Absolutely. Is that a logical answer for how these? And so what we're talking about is this is not a translational issue. We're not talking about who has the better translation. What we are speaking about is which source did it come from? At the moment, only the authorized version comes from the correct source. The other 800 versions of the English Bible all come from the corrupted sources. By the way, even the New King James is influenced by those other sources. That Whenever they came to a conflict, they would choose those other sources. So even the New King James is not the same as this. It's not an updated. It is a changing of text. In the New King James, there is over eight changes per page. That's quite a bit. And they're not messing around with little things. They do affect doctrine. Now, again... All I'm doing is I'm trying to say the Bible promised to preserve our word. And I want you to have confidence that we can have God's word. God is not the author of confusion. But there's a lot of confusion out there today, isn't there? Well, can we clarify? Yes. God inspired his word. He promised to keep his word. That we can have proof, evidence, that we have a correct source that agree with each other. And there's a source that doesn't agree. 
Where did our translation came, come from? They came from the correct source. That the authorized version is a, the perfectly preserved word of God for the English speaking people. Because it came from the correct source. Does that make sense? Now again, I'm spinning this more of a, a lecture. What do I want you to do with this? Well, first of all, if this is God's word... I want you to treat it like God's word. I want you to have confidence that the Bible that you have in your hand is the word of God. Because people will question you all the time. I get comments and questions. I've talked to professors and whatnot all the time about the Bible. It seems to be their favorite subject. I'm always talking about it with someone who's up there. They're like, I don't believe that the, you're one of those King James people. I am. Well, why are you? Well, it's because I believe that it came from the right source. You always go to manuscript stuff. Well, it's because it's the only thing that matters. I'm not arguing what's the better translation. It's what text did it come from. That's the argument that we have to go through. If it could be a great translation of a wrong text, I cannot use it. Does that make sense? I want you to come to it, and I want you to be able to explain it to someone else. One of our young ladies was just saying this weekend, someone says, why do you use the King James? I want you to be able to explain, not because my pastor said so, or this is what our church does, or because that's what I grew up with. I want you to be able to have a reasonable answer for those folks, to be able to say, this is why I use it. And we don't have to be mean or ugly. We don't have to say, there's a lot of people who use different versions who just have never been taught. Does that make sense? They're not evil or bad. They're just not been taught. And most of them who are honest, who love the Lord, if we teach them and show them these things, they say, you know what? I have no problem switching. I have no problems using it because I want to use the correct word of God. Does that make sense? Now there's other people who for other reasons will not, that's their own problem. But we want to reasonably explain what we believe and why and be able to have confidence for ourselves that the Bible that we have in, ha in our hands is the Bible God intended us to have. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.